This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and UpSnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravindra, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room. Sarav, tell us all about it. The chat room is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great conversation, and today's subject matter, I'm sure, will have everyone sharing their own dreams and comments as well. So do come join us. Um, if you cannot join in live, then uh, you can catch the replays. You can just go in and check it out. Oftentimes we'll have, you know, the guest or the guest assistant in the chat room as well, and they provide even more information. So that gives you great value. It does, it does. All right. In the spotlight this week, we turn our attention to limits. What are the acceptable limits for training our young people to behave according to approved standards? What are approved standards? Exactly what is considered to be good and bad behavior? Is it bad behavior for a youngster to wear a shirt with a picture of the American flag on it? Is it unacceptable behavior for a student to bless their food before eating in school? Is it wrong for a child to ask questions? Should a child remain silent when something is said that is contrary to the teachings of their parents? Should a child always behave like the adults in school? Well, the answer is and should be, it depends. There are so many horror stories of children led astray by adults that a responsible parent today must caution their children about who, what, and when to obey the so-called authority. Enter this story from New Zealand. Headline? School plans to tag students with microchip bracelets to encourage good behavior. Now, what do you think of that? The story continues in a move that sounds like something out of a frightening dystopian fiction. A school in New Zealand has come under intense criticism from parents attempting to introduce a scheme to tag children with microchips in order to promote good behavior. Fairfax Media reports that Swanona School in North Canterbury plans to attach chipped bracelets to students to track their behavior. Many parents were not notified of the scheme, only finding out about it via minutes from a parent-teacher association meeting. When the local media investigated the proposal, the school finally sent out notifications to parents. A letter from the principal suggested that the plan was more efficient than alternatives such as ID cards, which could be misplaced. The school has been, excuse me, the school has even gone as far as measuring up the risks of children in preparation for the plan, which it says will cost $7,000 to set up. 
Under the proposal, the devices locked to kids' arms would allow teachers to use portable scanners in order to add reward points to a student's good behavior record stored on a database. Students would be rewarded points when they did something teachers determined to be positive, and incentives would be enhanced with a promise of prizes for reaching a certain amount of points. The chips would contain information including names, points tally, and the schoolhouse that students belong to. The school claims that the devices would not have a GPS tracker. Have we gone too far when we begin to monitor our children with microchip bracelets? Or not? I mean, for after all, college professor and MSNBC host Melissa Harris-Perry, professor of political science at Tulane University, where she is founding director of the Anna Julia Cooper Project on Gender, Race, and Politics in the South, said, and I quote, We have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families. Close quote. Kids belong to the whole community, she insists, and once we realize this, we'll make better investments in government indoctrination of children. Could it be true? Do your children belong to the government? Research together with precedent suggests that indeed they do. The fact is the government can step in as they have in the past on a federal, state, and local level and take your children. A quick search of records shows some really inane reasons for seizing, for seizing children as though they were the property of drug dealers. Take this instance, for example. A couple was charged with reading the Bible to their children without having training on the Bible. And for this, their children were taken. Why, you might say, we are all aware of the case of Justina Peltier. Some say, kidnapped by the hospital, she was taken by her parents, according to the instruction of the girl's primary physician. In other words, the parents did exactly as their doctor told them to do, and the state stepped in and took their daughter for doing so. Sure, they eventually had their daughter return to them, but not until the parents exhausted every foreseeable remedy, spent a personal fortune, and invested more than a year in getting their daughter back. So, what do we do if the state decides to use microchips in schools to monitor our children? The Affordable Care Health Bill contains a piece that calls for medical tagging, microchips, allegedly to eliminate health care errors. Are we really too far behind New Zealand's proposal to use microchipping for monitoring purposes? I am so reminded of Orwell in 1984. To quote Mr. Orwell, If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. That goes for all people, teachers, principals, politicians, and so on. How can one consider themselves truly free in a world of microchip monitoring? As Abe Lincoln stated, those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I have lots and lots of thoughts on this one, so I'll try to keep it brief. It's an example of one of good wrapping around on itself. You know, the fact is, if your next-door neighbor is abusing the ch a child and, you know, the child is beaten and 
you know, then you should step in and do something. But then you have the whole problem of the experts. How often have experts been wrong, as in the case with Justina Peltier? Then on top of that, you have, you know, there's been this big push about building child's esteem so you don't have competition. So now you're going to have a tagged bracelet that says who is better behaved than a different one. So how many points do you have and how many don't you? And the point system is perfect for programming according to whatever the teacher or the institution thinks the child should be thinking. So there's lots and lots there, and it's incredibly scary. Amen. And I am also reminded of a former German leader, and we'll leave it at that. Okay. Every week I read some of your letters is our way of recognizing the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show was a repeat while the station did some housekeeping. The week prior our show featured Lynn Claire Dennis and we discussed her NDE and the resulting work and books focusing on what she experienced during the NDE, something that today is called the Marian Matrix, the one matrix undergirding all. CB wrote, very interesting show. Seems like investigating the book is going to be a must to understand more. Now, Lynn Clare provided us with some numbers while she was on the air. I asked her for the data, and she provided links, including this comment. Eldon, living in Europe and working in British Sterling, I forgot that pounds is not dollars. Here is the article about it takes 20,000 pounds, 34,000 U.S. dollars to be in the 1%. I'll post this on my blog, my error, but understandable, I hope. It is still a stunning number. And I couldn't agree more than more, Lynn Clare. Mark wrote, Lynn Clare Dennis says that our planetary system is out of balance, largely because of the great disparity of wealth on this planet. Marian principles show that energy, materials, and resources of all kinds must be distributed equally. However, she states in her blog post that she does not advocate for the forcible redistribution of wealth among nations. She says that, it's in quote, it's time to look at why a single economic system is making the entire world sick, close quote. By economic system, I take her to mean our capitalistic system. If our economic system is responsible for much of the income inequality around the world, what system should we replace it with? Well said, Mark. Well said. Jan wrote, What a terrific show you have. Just discovered your radio program. I've used your CDs with great success for years. Now I can learn more by just tuning in. Thanks for what you do, Dr. Taylor. Well, thank you, Jan, for your feedback and support. Paul wrote, When I started running, I couldn't run one minute straight. Did my first full marathon in 18 months. Changed my life. So glad I started. I recommend running to everyone. Listening to Intertalk Joy of Exercise helped. Barbette wrote, I started running at 50 years old. Couldn't make it from one telephone pole to another. Thought my lungs were going to explode. I trained for and ran my first marathon that same year. Now at 52, I've run three full marathons. If I can learn to run, I believe anyone can. And I used Eldon Taylor's programs to have the courage, the strength, and the determination to do it. Well, congratulations, Barbette. Does it remind you of anybody, Rev? 
Most definitely. Those first one-minute runs were killers. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. <laughs> RJ wrote, Eldon, thank you for your beautiful work. You inspire us all and help us with your programs. Yesterday I was in a meeting called Woman of Wisdom and told them about your programs. I truly believe they can help everyone. They need to be in schools and school buses instead of the music everywhere. I believe they can help millions of people. Well, I certainly agree, RJ, and thanks for sharing. Tony wrote, Eldon, I'm currently reading all of your books. Wow, it's really changing my mindset. Thank you, sir. I mean that so much. And Linda wrote, I love what you are doing. Many blessings to you. Well, thank you, all of you, for your feedback and support. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. Do you think we contact the dead in our dreams? Do you think animals can provide us with dreams of the beyond? I mean, take this scenario, one that actually happened to me not but a month or so ago. My wife and I have enjoyed the friendship of two wonderful German shepherds. The first, Lady Balto, lived 13 years with us before we had to put her to sleep to eliminate the pain she was in. She was my dearest friend, and she would wait for me at the door when I traveled for days until I came home. We waited for some time before we purchased a young German shepherd male, Chief. Chief was an outstanding young dog. We all loved him, and he was everything we would ever want in an animal friend. But at the young age of four, he was diagnosed with leukemia. We tried everything, from chemo, which we suspended when we saw what it was doing to him, to holistic alternatives with a great vet who specializes in holistic treatments. Chief received the latest treatment forms, including resonance therapy, laser treatment, acupuncture, and herbal care. We thought we had him over it when suddenly, almost overnight, he became very ill and in great pain. Once again, I was faced with a dreadful life-and-death decision that none of us want to deal with. I swore no more dogs for me. Rav could have her miniature Aussies, but no more German shepherds until and unless Chief somehow told me to get one. My wife and sons encouraged me repeatedly, over and over during the next years, to get another German shepherd, and I repeatedly told them no, not until or unless Chief were to instruct me to do so, you know, via something like a dream or some other way. Then one evening I had such a dream, and the dream a German shepherd pup followed me everywhere, even to walk away from food. A person in the dream told me that the dog had chosen me. The dog was called Sable in the dream and was a sable color with black lines of a sort down its back. I told my lovely bride about the dream the next morning and dismissed it. She, however, decided to look in the paper for German Shepherd pups. There she found an ad that stated, quote, German Shepherd East Pups Sable Nine Weeks. Now, wait a minute. I've never seen an ad for shepherds in the past with the word sable in it, let alone bold and in the headline. So I called on the ad. They wanted $1,500. Get out of here. There were all sorts of registered German shepherds in the paper, starting at $450, and most of them were black saddle shepherds like the ones I like, like Balto and Chief. I've never even liked the plain sable dogs. Well, after talking to the woman with the dogs, I decided to take a look. When we visited the woman, the sable pup was no longer for sale. 
It was exactly like the dog I had seen in my dream, and it attached itself to myself and son, while no other pup seemed at all interested in us. The owner had decided not to sell this sable female, however. The owner was a minister. I told her of my dream and informed her that the only dog in her litter I would consider was a sable female. We left. She phoned shortly thereafter and informed me that I could have the dog. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. I posted pictures of Isabella, Sable, Mercedes, Von Wolfgang on my Facebook page the next day, and this wonderful animal continues to act in every way as though it recognizes us. So, is this just a strange set of coincidences, or can animals speak to you through your dreams and perhaps even from the other side? I mean, science is a term for this sort of experience and the subsequent interpretation. It is called apophenia. Quoting from You're Not So Smart by David McRaney, apophenia is an umbrella term that encompasses other phenomena like the Texas sharpshooter fallacy and pareidolia. When you commit the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, you draw a circle around a series of random events and decide there is some meaning in the chaos that isn't really there. In pareidolia, you see shapes like clouds or tree limbs as people or faces. Apophenia is refusing to believe in clutter and noise, in coincidence and chance. So now, according to scholarship, apophenia occurs most often when you feel that events in your life are synchronistic. Question. Do we force our interpretations of the world through a lens of convenience, one built more on emotion than reason? I mean, researchers' famous ultimatum game shows that if we set up a scenario whereby person A wins a cash award of, say, $10,000, subject to this caveat, he or she must share it with person B, a complete stranger and someone they are not likely to ever see again. The data shows that if person A offers much less than half of the award to person B, person B will reject the offer, even though the rejection means that both parties receive nothing. Apparently, our primate wiring, our emotions, instruct us that sharing is unfair if uneven. However, make this same offer to a computer, and the computer, using logic alone, will take anything over nothing. So again, the question, do we force our interpretations of the world? I mean, did the dream combined with that advertisement and added to the fact that there is no way I would have ever even looked at this litter without the dream based on the price and color alone? Does that mean something really happened, or did I just experience coincidence? The so-called one-in-a-million shot, which, by the way, is also known as Littlewood's Law. You see, Professor Littlewood made a few calculations leading to this observation. The average human being sleeps eight hours a day, and some event occurs about every second in their waking lives. That means that about one million chances occur every month. So the one in a million chances theme translates into we should expect mathematically to experience this about once a month. Not such a long shot after all. Enter today's guest. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the paranormal, metaphysical, and spiritual fields and is the author of more than 50 books, including The Pocket Dream Guide and Dictionary, and five other books on dreams. 
She has been a lay facilitator of DreamWorks since the early 1990s, helping people explore their dreams in one-on-one and group settings. She also conducts workshops on developing intuitive and psychic ability. She is a former board member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. Rosemary has been with us before, and she is a frequent guest on my favorite Coast to Coast AM with George Nury where she often discusses dreams. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Good afternoon, Eldon. It's good to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. It's quite rainy out here in Connecticut, though. We're having a monsoon. Oh, we had a monsoon. (laughs) We had ours just yesterday. Listen, you heard the setup piece, right? Science describes our biases and methods of interpreting the world. And I mean, every paranormal, every psychic potential has a counterpart. You know, science has to have a way to explain it. Where are you with these kinds of of views, Rosemary? I vote for a magical universe. I believe in synchronicities, uh, that the universe uh, arranges itself for us at certain times when we uh, need to have certain experiences. We can either live in a disempowered world where science reduces everything to an explanation that takes away all real meaning, or we can live in an empowered world where things have a magical way of uh, flowing around us, or circumstances arranging themselves to give us deep emotional and spiritual meanings and experiences, which in turn connect us to that greater whole, you know, the, the great cosmic order, the divine. And so that's where I stand. I, uh, I fully uh, acknowledge that when it comes to dreams, uh, many times our meaningful dreams are couched in symbols that are ways of expressing our deep-seated emotions and desires to us. But on the other hand, since ancient times uh, throughout history, we have well-documented dream experiences that are transcendent, where we are lifted up into literally what seems to be another dimensional space, where uh, different sorts of experiences happen, the meetings with the dead, the uh, encounter dreams, uh, being in the presence of God, uh, seeing beyond uh, linear time. And these are uh, true and genuine experiences. I, I was fascinated about your experience with the German Shepherd, and this is an animal form of what in reincarnation literature is called the announcing dream, uh, well-documented in societies around the world where it is expected that uh, a person within a family line or a tribal community uh, will reincarnate within that same group and will announce its, itself before, uh, the personality will announce itself before birth, uh, and uh, e- even by name. Uh, so um, why should these things not happen with pets? So many stories of uh, pets coming back uh, in another form and their owners recognizing them. So you think my dream was more than apophenia? Maybe it did really have some some message and some meaning. I would like to think so. I definitely would like to think. And, and I love the way you put it. You know, we can choose the magical universe or we can choose... You know, the material universe, that mechanistic universe that so many people want to voice upon us where we are just, you know, 
um, cellular automata that, for all intent and purposes, you know, have executed along some evolutionary process to become the so-called thinking higher vertebrae homo sapiens sapien that we claim ourselves to be. You have comment on that real quick? We've got about 30 seconds before we have our first break. Human beings want to feel connected to something deeply spiritual. And these experiences, all of these experiences, the past life, the dreams, uh, synchronicities, all of these are ways that we are connected to each other and to the greater whole. All right. We're going to get a lot deeper into this. Uh, Rosemary has a marvelous book that I really enjoyed reading, and you're going to enjoy reading it. But she's also she, she has authored so many books, and she's done so much of this kind of work that no doubt we're going to find ourselves meandering away from the book. And I hope you're good with that as well, Rosemary. We're speaking. I certainly with, am. With so many topics and books that I've covered, um, I, I really love uh, fielding uh, questions in a lot of different areas. Great. We're speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about her delightful book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. You can learn more about her and her work by visiting, visiting visionaryliving.com. All right. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With Intertalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. Intertalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.intertalk.com to find your towel today. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about her delightful book, Dream Messages in the Afterlife, we ask our guests for up to three songs that have some special meaning to them. So now we just played Beneath the... Yes. Beneath the Frygrins... Say that for me, by Lorena McKennett. Rosemary, why is that song important to you, and how do you say that? Uh, McKennett. Lorena McKennett, in general, is important to me because she is so connected to to the mystical side of reality. Almost all of her songs pull you up out of ordinary waking consciousness into this dreamy world where uh, you can literally feel uh, being in touch with something deeply spiritual. And uh, under the Phrygian sky, uh, to me, is particularly evocative of, of that, uh, and has uh, an especially dreamy quality to it. Um, our dreaming life is so important to us in terms of uh, what it accesses, and it accesses realities that we normally don't come in contact with in waking consciousness. And um, there are some artists, like Lorena McKennett, who seem to be able to straddle both worlds very well, the waking life and the spiritual dream life. And this song, I think, is particularly expressive of that. Friggy and Sky, that's from Turkey, is it not? Or what used to be Turkey? Um, I'm not sure, actually, but somewhere in the Mediterranean, yes. Okay, well, you pronounced it for me. Thank you very much. All right. In our setup piece, I also suggested that emotion clouds our judgment, Rosemary. So as with the ultimatum game, we may sacrifice our own gain if we believe another's gain is unfair. Does this same sort of interference uh, go on? I mean, when it comes to interpreting our dreams or other synchronistic events in our life? The interpretation of dreams and synchronicity really is up to the individual, and uh, we we apply our own uh, perspective, our uh, our own meanings, and our own significance to um, the events and the symbols that are embedded in both. But it uh, it does seem that some people seem to be in a better flow than than others, and uh, uh, I think the playing field really is quite democratic. Uh, some people seem to be born with a natural gift for getting in the flow and making use of cosmic forces and uh, opportunities in life. They can uh, have a very good sense of uh, energy shaping up in their favor, and they know in- intuitively how to maximize that. And other people really have to learn it. They, they kind of struggle uh, for a while to get the hang of it. Uh, another thing that we have to take into consideration, Eldon, is uh, what are the karmic issues that uh, a person comes into life with? Because I think some people really do choose uh, a very difficult life where they have to overcome a lot of obstacles, but they they either need to do it or they want to do it in order to uh, move on to something else. Uh, 
So there are factors that uh, we may not understand in any given uh, play of of uh, winning, uh, so to speak, and, and opportunities. Uh, that's, I, I find that, you, you know, I, I guess where I get to is, you know, I, I try to keep one foot in science and one foot in the magical world because my own experiences tell me that science is insufficient when it comes to explaining, you know, uh, what being human is all about. So, but with that said, I'm, I'm so aware of how we can put on our own rosy colored glasses and interpret the world according to our biases and, and our expectations and, and, and that can lead us very far astray sometimes. So what I, what I like to think that maybe you could even help us find is some kind of calculus that, that could be used so, you know, we keep ourselves grounded in, in all of our interpretations. Have you discovered any such thing? It is very important to be grounded and, uh, and yet open to what I call the spiritual planes, be grounded mm-hmm. to the earth and open to the spirit realms. I find that a daily practice of meditation and prayer, but especially meditation, is one of the best grounding mechanisms um, available to us. And it really doesn't matter what our faith is, uh, how how we want to meditate, how we view the divine, what our concept of God is, uh, because that grounding centers us and gives, gives us a focal point that then we can relate to everything else going on around in life. And uh, since I work in both the metaphysical fields and the paranormal fields, I stress this in both, that, you know, first you must consider natural explanations, especially when it comes to paranormal phenomena, for example. Uh, but you you look for rational explanations, and uh, in these experiences we have that are transcendent, these magical experiences that connect us to the greater whole, rational explanations usually don't suffice. We can maybe explain part of those experiences rationally, but not all of them. And the important thing is to, to not dismiss experiences because they can't be explained naturally. We then have to go to a more transcendent explanation. What does this have to say to us spiritually? Uh, how is God or the universe speaking to us? And uh, integrate that into our worldview. Uh, so this expanded viewpoint uh, over the course of time becomes broader and broader and broader. And I don't think we ever really lose our grounding, um, but uh, we can open up to, uh, to, to accept more and more experiences and perspectives and explanations that science yet isn't comfortable with. Uh, right. so going Sometimes. into all of these areas, it really does require bridging both sides, just like you, you described about yourself. You know, and sometimes Occam's razor just doesn't cut the beard. That's all there is to it. <laughs> but now, you, you know, the, the other thing that I enjoy is I, you know, I, I go back far enough that I can remember when I first started meditating, uh, I was involved in law enforcement, and a law enforcement friend of mine thought that was ridiculous. You're meditating, you know. That was a that was a big laugh. That was something they expected the Harry Krishners to be doing at an airport. Okay, but today you fast forward, 
And, you know, you, you can visit your local cardio, uh, cardiac specialist, and he'll tell you to meditate. That's the best thing you can do for your health. You can visit your cognitive uh, expert, your uh, psychotherapist. He'll tell you to meditate. He, she will tell you to meditate simply because the research now shows us that that is a great way to not just increase cognitive abilities but to literally reorganize how you process information in the brain so i totally concur with you meditation is probably you know that's one of those things that we need to add into our daily part and parcel of everything that we we consider as important as human beings okay let's talk about dreams more specifically our sciences inform us that dreams consolidate memories Vent conflict, resolve or relieve psychic tension, and so forth. Further, we can enter a dream and alter it, as with a lucid dream, and a dream research shows us that we need dreams physically, because dream deprivation studies have shown us that our health becomes threatened without them. According to this model, dreams are purely an internal matter. So what first led you, Rosemary, to viewing dreams as having some external origin or source experiences back in childhood Um, most children have some sort of uh, psychic experiences and um, these usually go away as as uh, we get older and more oriented toward the waking world Uh, but uh, for me they stayed very much in the forefront and uh, the first part of that was uh, psychic dreams that my mother had, and uh, she often dreamed of uh, deaths and disasters before they happened. As you can imagine, they were very unsettling to her, and she did not like this faculty. She usually had them about two to three weeks out, and not on a, a real frequent basis, but often enough. I was uh, an adolescent, my early teens, when uh, she told me about a lot of these dreams, and I was absolutely riveted that uh, to the the concept that uh, dreams could show us future events. Uh, this uh, made dreams very magical to me. And by the time I was in high school, I was pursuing an active dream explore- exploration li- life. Uh, I got some books by Harold Sherman. He was one of my first influential authors. He did some very good books on dream experiments about how to look into the future in dreams, how to project yourself out of body in dreams, and how to send and receive messages. So I started experimenting, and I had enough success in all of those areas to convince me that dreams were supremely important. From there, as I got older, I went on and delved into the works of Carl Jung and uh, really resonated with his take on dreams as having this um, this quality of uh, connecting us to the greater whole, reaching into the collective unconscious. Now, most mm-hmm. of our dreams really are about our waking life and about our anxieties. They're very good at expressing uh, back to us uh, how we really feel about how we're doing in life. And, and all of us have constant anxieties about everything going on. So dreams are a mechanism for dealing with those. But then we have these other dreams, these extraordinary dreams that reach beyond waking life and acquaint us and remind us of who we are 
uh, in terms of a soul, and that we are connected to something greater than, uh, than ourselves. Dreams do have a psychic component, they have a creative component, and a deeply spiritual component. And we can learn how to uh, exert uh, certain levels of control and management in our dreams through lucidity. That's a, a whole area of research that uh, has been showing a lot of promise over the years in terms of awakening our full mental and creative uh, capacities as human beings. Okay, I, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna ask you to depart. I'm gonna call upon your expertise here for a second because, as children, I believe we all have experiences that we then, for most of us, so we repress later in our adult lives. We just we put them away because we are told, oh, it's our imagination. Um, you know. There's no explanation for that. You're being irrational. That's not logical. And all those kinds of things. So we, we want to conform. We want to fit in. So we, we tuck them back. We hide them back. And we don't, as a result, ever really fully integrate them. And so it becomes very easy for us to swallow the diatribe of a Richard Dawkins and find ourselves in a world of, you know, just artifacts, just uh, on our way from dust thou art to dust returneth, you know, kind of concept. And to that end, I'm going to ask you to do something special. In the studio with me today, um, my wife's niece and sister, they wanted to be here to see how the radio show went. But my niece had uh, a very interesting experience just a couple of days ago here, and I'd like her to share that experience with you and then have you comment on it because I've said nothing at all to her about it. So, Tanya, you are up. Please tell us about the fairy that landed on your shoulder. I haven't heard this whole story, but you told your aunt, so... You're on the air. Speak up, please. Um, yeah, I was walking down the path, and then a fairy landed on my shoulder. And then as I looked like on my shoulder, it flew away, and I saw um, the back of it and its wings and stuff. Are you hearing that okay, Rosemary? I am, yes. Okay, now, okay, so describe this fairy and um, what makes this, I mean, have you seen fairies before? No, it was actually um, the first time I've seen a fairy, and it was, like, really light, like, it it was, like, light, like, it was, like, made out of the sun or something, it was really bright, and it had, like, these really round wings, and you could just make out like two little legs under like a dress now do you believe in fairies i mean have you always believed if you do okay so now here rosemary here we go live on the air for tanya there are some parents that would say yeah sure you know or they just dismiss it or they might sit down and discuss you know more detail uh and then, you know, forget about it. Um, or, you know, the therapist might even talk to Tanya about her predispositions that uh, could have forced this uh, manifestation. 
uh, all a matter of psychology. What say you to Tanya's experience? I believe in fairies, and I had experiences myself as a kid. It's, it's a very common experience for children. The fairy realm is real. Uh, they are intensely interested in children. They are seen when they want to be seen, and sometimes they will make themselves known if they, uh, they want to entertain or uh, engage with uh, a human being, especially uh, someone who's a, uh, a child. Uh, this is a lovely experience that Tanya had, and um, it's very typical of other kinds of experiences that I have collected over the years. Um, children Tanya. often have uh, these uh, encounters of early in life, and what the uh, reincarnational literature shows, and I think this can be applied fairly uh, across the board in terms of other kinds of uh, spirit experiences is that by the age of eight or nine, these experiences really drop off. They become less common. And part of the reason is that adults discourage children from talking about it. Now, with fairies, uh, I think a lot of adults sort of expect children to be engaged with um, what they would consider to be imaginary things, imaginary play playmates. And fairies, who from an adult perspective would be imaginary, so they might indulge uh, someone talking uh, about it, uh, but not take it seriously. And uh, that's unfortunate because we're taught then from a very early age in our culture to dismiss these otherworldly encounters as something that isn't real. It's just your imagination. It's something fooling you. Uh, when, in fact, these are genuine experiences that are linking us to otherworldly realms that are part of our whole reality. So I'm all in favor of allowing uh, children to talk about their experiences and to give them gravity. Uh, if they become a problem, and some children do have more troubling experiences, more along the dark and nightmarish side, uh, then that becomes an issue for, uh, for getting some sort of help. But um, in other cultures, these sorts of experiences would be accepted as genuine and perhaps even encouraged. All right. So, Tanya, one last question, quickly. What did it mean to you to see a fairy? Um, I find, like, I always had, like, trouble believing that they were real, but then seeing it actually meant that they were real, and now I fully believe that they are real and that they're there. So the world can be magical to you? Yeah. Not not explained by just all the artifacts. Okay, cool. I like that. All right, moving on. Uh, thank you, Tanya, for sharing. And and thank you very much, Rosemary, for indulging us and, and, and for your insight. Some researchers have suggested that dream symbols are unique to the individual. Well, as Carl Jung, who you mentioned, insisted that they're more archetypical. Uh, my question, do you believe there is one language, archetypal, shall we say, inherent to the language of dreams that gives us the magic translation box, the Rosetta There's, Stone, oh. so to speak? Uh, there are, Actually, there are a number of Rosetta Stones that we have to apply to dream work, and the archetypal realm is certainly one of them. These are... Uh, the aspects of symbols that are really larger than ordinary life. We have a personal 
association with symbols, personal definitions, where something means something to us because of the context of our life. Um, take, for example, a dog in a dream. Uh, a personal symbol for one person might be something that's loving, fun, a companion, loyalty, protection. Another person who's had a bad experience with dogs would see dogs as threatening, frightening, aggressive. So we have personal associations. And then there are archetypal associations where uh, you would have to look at the dog in terms of all the qualities that dogs represent. Um, and one of them would be aggression and, and fearsomeness and protection, uh, loyalty, all of those uh, characteristics. Uh, and then culture has a lot to do with it, too. Uh, we have slang. We have pop culture means idioms in our language that uh, – give us nuances to, uh, to certain uh, words, for example, and, um, and even events and, and activities. These also play a role in our dreams. This is one reason why sometimes dream dictionaries don't uh, work real well. And I'm a big fan of dream dictionaries. I think they're a very good starting point. But if you have a very old dream dictionary, such as one of the first ones written in Greek times from uh, Artemidorus, uh, then uh, those translations and retranslations of slang, puns, uh, cultural context, they lose their meaning over time. And so the definitions then don't really seem to apply. So dream work is very fluid. It is in constant uh, change and it's very dynamic, uh, that's one of the things that makes dream work very exciting. Yeah, I, I, I guess I've been stuck on these uh, dream dictionaries because so many times I've had somebody come to me and say, you know, according to this, or, or I read this, and then when you spend some time talking to them about that, uh, it, it turns that, you know, they're... They have a predisposed idea of what the dream means based on what they have interpreted as the language right straight from a dictionary. I can remember once participating in a dream research program with the Association of Research and Enlightenment, Edgar Casey's uh, organization. And there it was all about, you know, every character in the dream, everything that happens in the dream is about you. There's, you know, look at it as some aspect of you speaking to yourself. And I found that really interesting way to look at these dreams. And I very often have worked with people, you know, in their dreams and doing this. And it seems to change when you do that. It changes your view of what these other characters are. So the dog is a case in point. And when you see that as yourself talking to you, uh, it takes on another color, but I want to discuss that in a whole lot more and all the other, you know, you have broken dreams down into such an interesting subcollection of the different types, but we have a break on us. So when we get back, we'll go to that again. If you'd like to know more about Rosemary and her delightful book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife, visit her website or check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com. All right, we have a film featuring Rosemary in one of her more famous psychic investigations. You can see that in our chat room, so if you're not already there, get over to provocativeenlightenment.com. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. 
If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about her work with the psychic and paranormal and her new book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. Now, Rosemary, we just played your second musical choice, Running Down the Dream, by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I think I can guess on this one, but tell us, why is this music meaningful to you? Well, it is about pursuing your dreams. And that's very important, but it's got some other elements in that are particularly appealing to me. I spend a lot of my time on the road and uh, a lot of driving. Uh, I drive all over the country, in fact, and uh, I like driving. Uh, there's something about being on the road that's very liberating. And I, I do a lot of um, creative thinking when I'm on the road. So there's this sense of freedom in that song, that it's high energy, It's uh, you're uh, going down the road in pursuit of your dream, and there's the line in the song about I'm picking up whatever is mine. It's about being in the flow, and uh, I think being on the road, especially in America, epitomizes that, uh, just chasing your dream, going for it. So that's what that song represents to me. I tell you what, I I love driving for the same reasons you do, and... uh... Uh, I find it a very special kind of experience, and I have a collection of music that I have, you know, saved. I keep adding to it, you know, my iPod that I take and I play in my car, my convertible especially, when I'm driving at night with the top down. And I just added this one to my driving collection because it is great music. Something I, I, was, I wasn't familiar with this uh, song before this, uh, before you brought it to my attention, so thank you. Let's oh, talk welcome, about Alan. I'm just delighted. <laughs> it's a great song. I love it. Uh, let's talk about the types of dreams folks may experience. Your book does an excellent job, I believe, at discussing the different forms uh, and how to use those. We don't, you know, have enough time to go through every one of them, but let's take a few of them on. Please tell us about unfinished business dreams and provide an example or two, if you will, Rosemary of of, of an unfinished business dream. The book Dream Messages from the Afterlife focuses especially on ways that the dream uh, dreams are the medium for meaningful contact with the dead. Unfinished business is quite a common theme uh, soon after someone dies. Many cases of people being alerted to uh, the location of important missing papers, especially if someone dies suddenly, they haven't shared with family members where uh, financial records are kept, uh, account information, and uh, the person who's passed on will make a dream visit to someone who's close, a a family member or a friend, and give specific information that helps uh, the sorting out of affairs. There's a very interesting legend about Dante that I include in the book, too, and it was said that when he died in 1321, 
uh, he had finished his masterpiece, Divine Comedy, but uh, the last few pages were missing. Nobody could find them. And uh, this caused his uh, family great consternation because the masterpiece would uh, would not be uh, as great with uh, the end missing, of course. Right. And uh, then finally, one of his sons had a dream in which Dante came and told him where the missing pages were. And he said that they were behind a wall in a house where he had lived. Now, there's no explanation as to why Dante would have put the papers there, but the story goes that uh, they looked exactly where the poet had said and found uh, the pages, and so Divine Comedy is now complete. Interesting. Very interesting. You know, when you talk about dreams and, and death, and, and that's what your book is really about, it's messages from the afterlife, um, so crossing over or what have you, I, I, I'm struck by the, the kinds of dreams that announce impending death. Um, do we ever get a dream that foretells of our own death, not just the death of others? And, and, and flesh that whole idea out. And, and if you have some examples, share those too, please, Rosemary. It's very unusual to dream about your your own death, literally. Now, it's not uncommon to have dreams in which uh, we die or we see ourselves dead, and those are often symbolic dreams. There's, uh, we're, we're usually in some sort of very stressful situation in life where something is literally coming to an end or we feel emotionally a piece of us has died or an aspect of life uh, is now dead to us. But uh, the psychic shock of having a, a precognitive dream about your own death would be very difficult for most people to accommodate. And so those sorts of dreams usually happen to someone else, uh, even to strangers, if uh, the, uh, the impending death involves a major public figure. And the best example from history of someone who did dream of his own death, and frequently before he was assassinated, was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had a psychic side to him. He was very interested in uh, the spirit realm. His his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, even more so. She invited a lot of mediums uh, uh, to have audiences. And uh, Lincoln did uh, participate in some of that, but... Uh, he had um, premonitions that he would never survive his second term in office. And uh, as the fateful day approached in April, uh, when he was about to be shot by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington, uh, he had a very marked dream about 10 days beforehand that um, it was one of those false awakenings. And this is a... a, a characteristic of lucid dreams, that is, knowing you're dreaming while you're dreaming. So in the dream, uh, he wakes up. He's still dreaming, but he thinks he's awake, and he hears this wailing and uh, horrible sounds of people crying uh, in the White House, and he gets up and wanders around and then uh, comes upon a catafalque, uh, which has been draped uh, for uh, a corp, for holding a corpse. Mm -hmm. And uh, he asks uh, who is dead in the White House, and the answer is the president. He's been assassinated. He also had more dreams leading up to his assassination and confided uh, that uh, on three other nights he dreamed that he was going to be assassinated. 
Now, he seemed to accept this as his destiny, uh, and he was one of these great public figures who uh, literally was larger than life and probably had a very strong sense of his role in uh, the play out of, of great forces in history. Uh, so he's, he seemed to to accommodate this this fate, and uh, perhaps uh, who, we can speculate, who knows, he might even felt that uh, the sacrifice of his life uh, was a consequence or was necessary for the uh, the continuing outplay of forces um, surrounding the Civil War and the, the destiny of America as, as a whole nation. Right. Uh, more often, we're going to have uh, dreams of others. Uh, there was another startling example from uh, World War One, where uh, a a political advisor uh, had a very lucid dream about the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife the night before it happened. And in the dream, he opened up a letter uh, from the Archduke, and the letter says, I regret to inform you <laughs> of, of my uh, my assassination. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, knew, he knew that this was going to happen, uh, the man who got the dream. Um, there was another example from the 1960s, a very tragic case involving a coal slide in Aberfan, Wales, that I talk about in the book. Uh, this was a, a little town at the base of a mountain, and uh, one day there was a massive coal slide that uh, came down the mountain and buried the schoolhouse and some houses as well. A number of children and adults in the school were killed in that landslide, and children were among those who had precognitive dreams and and also premonitions beforehand about a black cloud coming down the mountain or that they would be going to school that day and not coming home, and, Mom, you shouldn't worry about me because I'll be with my friends, and uh, they, they turned out to be children who died as well. Uh, so we do have cases of, of that happening, but um, uh, dreaming for ourselves of our own impending death, even though we all know we're going to die someday, it's, uh, it's a rare occurrence. You know, I don't know how, <clears throat> how much veracity to put into this, Rosemary, but uh, it, it, before the break I was talking to you a little bit about uh, the ARE, the Casey Foundation, and some of the dream research that I was involved in there. And one of the things that they did was, you know, dream petitions, and so... Uh, I wanted to know what I was going to die of, you know, and, and when. I mean, it kind of helps you plan things. And I don't know, like I say, you know, how much credibility to lend in this, but I saw very clearly, you know, I, I was driving a truck, I was coming home, I was bringing a saddle, new saddle to my wife, and I reached back behind me, took my eye off the wheel, and suddenly, you know, there I was going over the edge, and I, I know the age. I, I, I know it all. It, it was so real. My wife said, well, don't ever buy me a saddle. And my son says, sell your pickup truck. Uh, I don't know, like I say, how much credibility or veracity to put into those kinds of things. And I guess you come back, and it's it's one of these that 2020 hindsight may be the only way that you ever... You know, we would not know that Lincoln's dreams were really prognostications of what was to come 
until and unless he'd been assassinated. Is that the way it is with most of our dreams? We have to, I mean, we, we're just going to have to get down the road and see? The whole faculty of precognitive dreaming is something that seems to be in um, an early stage in human beings. I think this is a, an evolutionary capability, and uh, we get glimpses of these future events and more often than not, it's uh, a frustration because uh, we don't know sometimes until we have that hindsight and we see that we had a forewarning. And with that then comes this frustration of, well, if I saw it, why didn't I know it? And if, if I could have known it, was there anything I could have done to stop it? Now, um, I have uh, in one of my other books, uh, I have a new book coming out as well in September called Dreamwork for Visionary Living. And no, I'm going to interrupt you. You've got to make sure I get a copy of that. You've got to come I back to the show. I certainly will, Eldon. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, go ahead. I look at precognitive dreaming from uh, some different angles that I do in Dream Messages from the Afterlife. And uh, there seem to be cases where we dream precognitively, and we uh, we have a certainty when we wake up that this is a real event that's going to happen, or it could be a real event that, that happens. And if it's within our personal sphere, there seem to be things that we can do to change things, uh, change circumstances to avert what we've dreamed about. Uh, in other cases, we might awaken knowing uh, with a deep dread that something is going to happen no matter what. And when people dream of big disasters, uh, such as um, natural catastrophes or airplane crashes or uh, train or, or boat accidents, things like that that are very horrific with mass death, um, there doesn't seem to be much we can do to prevent that. And my explanation of that, which uh, I borrowed a little bit from physics here, that uh, every event is the outcome of probable forces in motion. It's the probable outcome of forces in motion. And if forces in motion change, then the previewed event is going to change as well. Uh, With big disasters, uh, it could be that there are so many powerful forces in motion that pass critical mass. It's like an airplane taking off. Airplane does a taxi roll, and at a certain point, that airplane has to take off. Uh, And that seems to be what happens with these big events that involve many, many people, uh, many, many individual consciousnesses contributing to it. Uh, There's a critical mass factor that by the time people start uh, tuning in precognitively to it, the critical mass factor has already been passed. We have some examples from 9-11. Yeah. Uh, now, I was uh, very active in the International Association for the Study of Dreams uh, in some programs about collective dreaming at the time of that incident, and we were flooded with um, hundreds, if not thousands, of reports of people who claimed to have precognitively the disaster, but nobody had the whole picture. This is another frustrating thing about precognitive dreams. Uh, we will dream pieces of an, e- of an event. Even if we see the whole event, there's vital missing information, date, time, place. So people had uh, preview glimpses 
of 9-11 to uh, a dramatic degree. Buildings collapsing, planes crashing into buildings, um, nuclear winter, which uh, could have symbolized all that ash and debris that scattered through the air, people running in panic, mass death, all of these things were previewed by uh, thousands of people, but nobody dreamed that on that particular date, at that particular time, terrorists were going to fly planes into the World Trade Center. So uh, is this a, a capacity of human beings that we can evolve? Can we, uh, can we do things to, to um, improve this ability to look into what really is a probable future landscape? Uh, and I think we do. Uh, there are ways that uh, we can uh, improve our psychic ability and even train ourselves to look into the future with varying degrees of success. The more that most of us, the more people who do this uh, and do it more often, we're going to af affect the collective whole. And uh, this may be an, a, a talent then that will emerge in uh, a, a greater capacity just naturally in future generations. Interesting. I, I, I guess I have two two thoughts that arise there. The first one is, of course, you know, I'm sure that if we asked the world um, how many of you dreamed last night about some horrific incident, we would have a tremendous number of people reporting that they dreamed about a natural disaster. So it's always easy to put um, the dreams of an individual given on a day, you know, together with a disaster, because there's just a certain number of this global population that are going to have that kind of a dream. But the other aspect, I, I can remember years ago reading Hans Holzer's book, I believe it's titled Windows to the Past, where he documented several precognitive dreams individuals had that because they were aware of and because they remembered the circumstances leading up to the impending danger, they were able to change what they did and change the outcome. And, and, and indeed, you know, otherwise the dream would have come true. So I think the point that we have this capacity uh, is well taken. And the idea that we might somehow collectively... Uh, facilitate that to improve events in our world, I, I find that, uh, I, I suppose I find it hopeful. That's the word I'm looking for. I find it hopeful. Listen, Rosemary, in your book, you talk about reassurance dreams. Give me a reassurance dream example. I need one that reassures me we're all going to begin to practice more peace in our world. Well, from the standpoint of dream messages from the afterlife, the, the reassurance dream is uh, a, a recently dead person coming back in a very dramatic dream visitation, which is often lucid and intensely real, and reassuring uh, someone that they're all right. Uh, don't worry about me. I'm okay. Uh, don't grieve. Don't be sad. Uh, and these dreams carry tremendous emotional impact for the dreamer. Now, sometimes it's not the most logical person who gets the dream. For example, uh, a man passes on and he might not visit his, his uh, widow, his wife, 
but uh, it, he might visit a friend who, who then relays the message. And uh, this seems to have to do with the mechanism of dreaming. Uh, this sort of energy, and we find the same thing with psychic energy as well in terms of psychic experiences. It's like electricity. It follows the path of least resistance. And uh, we might have um, barriers to, uh, to the dreaming consciousness that we might not be aware of that would be difficult to penetrate. But at any rate, the message gets through. These reassurance dreams have the ability to relieve the grieving considerably and not to diminish the importance of therapy because some people do enter into therapy to deal with their grief, and that's very important. But uh, a reassurance dream can uh, bring uh, more healing benefit to people than uh, a, a lot of kinds of therapy. Uh, so it sort of vaults them to the next level, enables them to, to process their grief uh, much more easily. Also brings reassurance to many people of the afterlife. Um, we might intellectually believe in survival after death and in an afterlife, but the experience, the actual personal experience of evidence being presented to us uh, carries a lot more weight. And uh, quite often, it, you know, it's like uh, uh, Tanya being uh, convinced of fairies when she had the experience. Once we have the experience, then something that was abstract to us becomes real. Right. Right. I guess, you know, I think about most of these experiences as reassuring us that not only is the afterlife real, but peace abides on the other side. It is a wonderful place to be. But they're not all that way, are they, Rosemary? Uh, you mean uh, all experiences of the afterlife? Yeah. All the dreams, yeah. And, 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 and I'm asking you a question when we've got less than a minute before a break. But essentially what I'm interested in, and we'll go to this after the break, is do you, I mean, do people ever report having this reassurance dream that is the the dearly departed coming back to them and reporting to them anything other than how wonderful it is, how peaceful it is? I mean, you know, there is, there are these thresholds, these, uh, we think of them as realms where soul spirits can get stuck and we get the poltergeist or the haunting or the you, you know that whole story much better than i do do we ever have that kind of a dream where we're being told about places that we don't want to go in the event that we cross over on that one i will ask that question when we come back from the break we hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to take your comments and questions. If you've had a dream and you'd like Rosemary to give you a quick review, it's your opportunity to give us a call. Uh, or you can place that um, dream or comments in our chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back after we pay some of our bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. 
Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about mind programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about her delightful book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. We will take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions for our guests, do you have a dream you'd like interpreted, or other remarks, give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Now, we just played And She Was by the Talking Heads. What's the story with this one, Rosemary? I interpret this song as a lucid dream, even though there's a line in the song that says uh, the woman uh, is making sure she's not dreaming. She's lying in the grass in kind of a dozy state, and her senses become expanded. She can hear the highway breathing. And then she literally goes out of body, which would uh, be characteristic of an out-of-body projection in a lucid dream. And she rises up over the backyard, uh, sheds her dress, which would be like shedding the physical body for an astral body. And uh, the song is about being okay with it. She just keeps going higher and higher, and 
and she can see more and more, and she expands. She literally expands into everything that is. I, I took it to be more like an out-of-body. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really good. All right, before the break. A, an, an out-of-body projection in a lucid... Uh, it, in a lucid it, dream. It's a, a lucid state, you know, lucid kind of dreaming state. But, yes, it is out-of-body. That's a great song. Uh, before the break, I uh, I asked you the big question, you know. Uh, do we ever get these dreams about the other side that don't tell us everything is roses, you know, that, that indeed, well, let me just couch it this way. Once upon a time, I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. There are many doors that you go through, and, you know, if you make the wrong turn, well, you don't end up where you want to be. So there are tormentors in that process. And I I give credit to reading that as triggering a dream where uh, I had three tormentors that were the most frightening figures. I still recall it as though it happened last night in that I have ever come across. that, And I, and I was literally overtaken by the sense of, what evil might really be like. I mean, genuine, pure evil, as though that were a possibility when you move from this side. Uh, dreams of that nature, that's my question. There are troubling dreams sometimes. They're, uh, in the reported literature, they are in a minority. Uh, someone might have a dream where they feel the person who's passed on is uh in a troubled state or is um is not happy and um people who have taken their own lives will sometimes appear in dream visitations and express their regret uh and also that they have uh the circumstances that they have encountered in the afterlife uh their their troubles aren't over it wasn't quite what they thought it would be. Uh, sometimes people think that by ending their lives, they're literally going to go into oblivion, and they seem to be um, even shocked when they find out that it's not the end. Uh, well, so, yes, know, those kinds of dreams do happen. I'm um, not familiar with dreams that uh, would be like visions of hell, for example. That uh, doesn't seem to happen, but we might have uh, a sense that um, someone is uh, someone who's passed over is is still being troubled in some sort of way, and the okay, response to that me, is ask to you pray to hold for them. It. Let me ask you to hold it here for just a second. Right this minute, you know, Robin Williams just passed over, and uh, um, he apparently hung himself. And there's some question about maybe some of the drugs and whether or not. You know, uh, the the drug itself could have motivated this, as there are drugs that, you know, the warning comes with it that they can cause suicidal thoughts. Uh, but there are all kinds of people, and there's all kinds of rattle on the Internet right now of people that are experiencing dreams, had dreams last night about Robin Williams and the state that he is in. And, of course, you know, he's a... He's a, a figure that is so well known that, in a sense, he could be, you know, a relative to almost all of us uh, who have ever enjoyed, you know, one of his performances, know who he is, or watched Mork and Mindy, or, I mean, he, he really has a grip on the fiber of a lot of, 
you know, people in the world. Do you believe that these dreams that these people are having now uh, are psychological in their nature? They're expressing the loss uh, that they're feeling, or are they actually connecting somehow with Robin Williams or a combination of both? It's going to be a combination of both. Some of these dreams will be projections of shock, uh, and uh, sorrow on the part of the dreamers. Uh, and uh, some of them will be, um, you know, glimpses in, into uh, perhaps uh, what his initial state is in, in the afterlife. What uh, suicides have often expressed is, um, I didn't know it was going to be like this, you know, uh, don't, uh, don't do it this way, you know, you, you shouldn't take your own life, or my problems aren't over yet. Uh, there are some, however, who've expressed uh, being at peace. You know, it's like, well, this might not have been the right thing to do, but I am at peace, and so I made the, I'm making the best of it. Uh, and I think that right after death, uh, regardless of how it happens, my personal view is that we have a transition period, and uh, the mediumistic literature and also the afterlife dream literature does support that concept that. Uh, there is like a transitional stage that we go through to reorient, and some souls have more awareness of this transitional stage than others. And uh, then after that, then there is another movement deeper into the afterlife. I also believe in uh, in redemption. I don't think that the afterlife is fixed, that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, but that everyone has the chance for improvement, redemption, and betterment in the afterlife. And even if we start out in uh, a more troubled stage, uh, we have the capability through spiritual help uh, of uh, advancing to a, a better state of being. Uh, this is so important uh, regarding suicides that uh, they really do need a lot of prayer support and that does help them. That uh, vibrational energy of prayer helps them quite a bit uh, in uh, making their adjustment. Okay, let me ask you this, Rosemary. I mean, you know, in the mystical circles, there are a lot of practices that have to do with um, assisting those that pass over. I mean, one practice might be to help them awake, uh, awaken, because... Uh, you know, there are those that believe that when you go to sleep, it takes you a while to wake up and realize that, you know, you have crossed over, that you're no longer here. So there are practices to help uh, the the deceased awaken. There are practices that are, as you say, designed, you know, prayer uh, to to, you know, strengthen an individual, to encourage the individual, to to bring peace to the individual, and so on and so forth. There are also practices that uh, have to do with uh, marrying people in the afterlife or sealing them to family members in the afterlife uh, and so forth. Uh, um, all of these different practices uh, that are aimed at dealing with the afterlife, it, it, my question is this, not whether or not they're valid, the practices, but are those on the other side, based on your experience, your investigations, aware of the practices that are going on back here? 
They certainly can be. There, there seem to be uh, different levels of engagement between uh, the living and the dead. And um, sometimes uh, the dead, either by choice or circumstance, and I think choice has a lot to do with it, uh, are able to remain close to the world of the living. And uh, they will revisit through dreams uh, throughout uh, someone's life to comment or advise on uh, situations and events. Uh, and they have an aware, more of an awareness of uh, earthly affairs. Uh, others seem to move into further reaches of the afterlife where there's less of a connection. Uh, and at some point in the, the evolution of the afterlife, and since I believe in reincarnation, I believe that we, we spent time uh, preparing for the next uh, incarnation, uh, there may be reaches of the afterlife that are so remote that um, we don't make contact with the dead after after a certain point. But the circumstances vary. Uh, many cases uh, on record where people feel that dead family members become like guardian angels to them. They're quite present. They make frequent appearances. They, uh, they, they almost uh, become like saints, intercessory saints in a way, uh, of uh, more engagement in, in the lives of the living. Well, now, you know, to that, I, I guess you draw some interesting corollaries. And one one of the corollaries that uh, that you, you bring to our attention, you just did, the intercessory uh, role that um, a relative or a friend that's passed over might play to assist us. But you also draw corollaries between afterlife dreams and near-death experiences, Flesh that out for us. How how are they the same? There are many crossover characteristics. Uh, the experiences have an, a, a tremendous vividness and emotional intensity. Uh, with the dream, it's uh, often intensely lucid. That is, uh, you feel very much awake, even though it's a dream experience. Uh, everything feels tangible and physical. They're characterized by intense colors. Uh, by brilliant light, uh, and by a sense of transport. Now, with the dream visits, uh, sometimes there's not a sense of traveling somewhere uh, like there is with a near-death experience where you're, you're traveling toward uh, that bridge to the afterlife. Um, but there is a sense of being somewhere besides the earthly realm, even if the settings in the dream are familiar. You're still someplace else interdimensionally. There are the presence of guide figures in both of these kinds of experiences. Um, the guide figures are not necessarily immediately identified as angels, but some sort of spirit guide. People often interpret them as angels. There may even be other dead people around. Uh, the principal deceased person who is making the visit might have other people in the background uh, of those dreams. And uh, the communication is telepathic. Um, the messages are, seem, to, are, seem to be impressed uh, into the head. And there is a threshold. Now, with a near-death experience, the, the person who is uh, on the verge of death comes to a boundary and uh, finds out that they can't cross that boundary, or if they choose to cross it, there is no return uh, to the physical world. And the boundary that occurs in these dream visitations is the sense of the separation between the living and the dead. The dead person comes from 
another place, often uh, through a doorway or down a path. Uh, the meeting is usually short. Uh, time is of essence. And they often tell uh, the, the living person that they are meeting with that you can't come with me. Uh, I'll always be available to you, but where I am going now, uh, you cannot come to. So there is that boundary. And uh, it's often reinforced by very stark dream imagery. So it's, it's interesting that these experiences that vault us to the edge of the afterlife uh, share uh, great similarities. And that you has know, been documented throughout history. Right, and it forces a question. And uh, again, we come back to one foot in science and one foot in metaphysics. I had on the show Dr. Kevin Nelson, MD, neurologist, who ran a very tight study and uh, examined NDEs from a neurological standpoint and says they are REM in nature, rapid eye movement in nature. So they are um, nothing more than dreams. His point is there's no such thing as an NDE. It is all a dream that uh, is orchestrated uh, at a time when uh, we, uh, for all intent and purposes, may have a brain dying on us for lack of oxygen or something. What What is your view on that? Are they one and the same, or are they indeed truly different? Well, I have to speak as a layperson here, uh, one who uh, appreciates science, and I'm always uh, looking for scientific explanations of things. Uh, my work, however, really is focused on the, the uh, transcendent nature of experiences, the how and the why behind that and what they mean to people. And my perspective is that these two are intertwined. I mean, the, we have certain capabilities, uh, the way the brain functions, the way the brain gives us uh, sensory and extrasensory experiences, and so those mechanisms are going to be involved in all of our visionary experiences. Uh, we may not be able to separate where uh, dreaming consciousness leaves off and, uh, a near, for example, a near-death uh, experience actually begins. It may very well be that the mechanisms that, that enable us to dream have to be involved in something like a near-death experience because it is so far beyond ordinary waking reality. Um, ancient people seem to have um, a, a much more holistic view in, in me, regarding many of these experiences, where when, when you look at the literature, uh, the differentiation between states of consciousness is uh, less exact and more fluid. There are uh, things that happen during waking time, and then these other visionary sorts of experiences that uh, can happen in reveries and sleep, um, as, uh, you know, visions even while you're awake. Uh, and they're all part of our reality. They're all a valid part of our reality. Um, when studies were done of deathbed experiences, when uh, Carlos Osis and Erlander Haraldson looked at um, those and studied, um, you know, hundreds of them uh, several decades ago, to look for, you know, is there a natural way, a mechanistic way to explain these visions of heaven uh, and the dead that people have in their final moments of life. And these are usually people who 
um, are are dying of like a terminal condition where they have this advancing awareness of death. Not uh, it's not a sudden death, and um, they couldn't find a natural explanation that could account for all of the experiences in terms of like oxygen deprivation, um, uh, medication. Uh, even cultural uh, explanations could not, uh, cultural expectations could not answer all of the uh, patterns of these visionary experiences that the dying report. And uh, they have certain patterns like this, this transition place of seeing a beautiful place, these intensely vivid colors, uh, of seeing uh, spiritual figures and um, also dead people they know, uh, who, who many, in many cases visit them uh, in advance. And uh, they might hear uh, beautiful music. Uh, so are these just uh, desperate hopes of people uh, in their final moments that uh, they're not going to be at the end? Uh, or are we getting in touch with... Uh, something cosmic, um, something transcendent that we all participate in. My vote goes with the latter. You know, and I, I totally concur. I've interviewed uh, more than two dozen now uh, physicians, uh, hospice care people, um, both sides of the argument, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind but what the average reasonable man, which is, you know, what we would use as our judgment in a court of law, would not come to the conclusion that the preponderance of evidence surely argues for an afterlife. That said, you know, your point of the mechanism is also critically important because there is the argument that, look, in order to store a memory, uh, there's a certain neurological process that must take place. So if the dead... Uh, how is it possible for you to store the memory that you're reporting when you come back from the dead? So this whole point that you make, that we share mechanisms, uh, that becomes a critical aspect of it. You know, I, I don't, we, we used to have a, a definition for when a person was brain dead, but we have discovered since that those early definitions were wrong. People who were, we thought were brain dead, that were in deep comas with no brain activity, we've since learned uh, they're aware. They're very much aware. So that's brought into question, you know, when is it right to terminate someone that's in a coma under that basis? And we don't have a current answer. We have some some brand new methods that we we use to test to see if the person is aware and they're revealing a lot of information to us, but we don't have a threshold any longer for what we consider to be truly brain dead. Um, so the whole the whole process of the mechanism takes on a greater, deeper impact. Rosemary, we're, we don't have a lot of time. We've got about one minute. I want everybody to know how they can get a hold of you, get copies of your books, learn more about what you do, because I love what it is that you do. Well, thank you, Eldon. My website is visionaryliving.com. Dream Messages from the Afterlife and a lot of my other books are available on my website and also on Amazon in print and in Kindle as ebook 
uh, an ebook format and also an ebook format on Nook, a Barnes and Noble Nook, Apple iTunes, and Kobo. The world is a lot more than the shoes and ships and sealing wax, the cogs and gears and mechanisms that some would have us believe it is. I really appreciate you coming to the show today, Rosemary. I suggest all of you get her book, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. <laughs>